Amen. I want to encourage you this morning to open your Bibles to the New Testament. We're looking in the book of Acts, chapter 2. And I have a slight adjustment to the verses listed in your bulletin. We're going to look at verses 41 through 47. Again, that's Acts chapter 2. Would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word? So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word. Would you have a seat? Well, this morning we're taking a break from Psalms to do a series on building life together. The idea of living in community and how do we build life together? How do we live in community? And, and, and before we answer that question, we perhaps need to answer the question of, well, why live in community? So why should we live in community? Community is a bit of an enigma for most of us. We have this intuitive sense that we need community, that we need people around us, but at the same time, we also have this, this nagging desire to get away and kind of escape the community because with the community comes potentially stress and anxiety, disagreements, controversy, hurt feelings, all kinds of things that go along with that. So there is this bit of enigma. So why live in community at all? And again, let's appeal back to that intuitive sense that yes, community is something that we need, though we may not fully understand why. If you were to look for a biblical basis of community, you can find that the very first time in the Bible that something is described as not good, it was to not be in community. When God looked at Adam and said, it is not good that he should be alone. It is not good that he should be alone. There is this sense of being alone isn't good. And I think we intuitively get that. There is something bad about loneliness. I mean, think about the way some prison wardens will use isolation as a punishment for those who have been causing problems within the prison. And that says so much right there, because you think here is, here is a community of people who have been brought together this place specifically because they have done something to go against the law. They have broken law. That, that restraint, that ordinary restraint that is, rests upon most citizens has been breached by these people, creating a potential community where there's potential danger and risk. But even that community is desirable over the isolation that get used for prisoners when they break the rules, as it were. So there is this sense in which, okay, I get it. Community is something that I need. I know I need community. But at the same time, 
Why do we feel such an urge to get away? I mean, you, you feel that urge at times, do you not? I mean, when we think of our ideal vacations, what do we often think of? Some place that's secluded, it's remote, right? It's away from the crowds, it's away from the people. It's not just away from the crowds in town, it's away from the ordinary people that I am around with. It's like I need a break from this community because somehow this community has, has, has hurt me, has drained me, and I need to get away. Or how many times have you driven through the countryside and looked at the acreage and thought, oh, it would be so nice to have that acreage. I could just get away. I could put so much more distance between me and the rest of the people. Community we get is something that we need. At the same time, we want to push it away because it's like, it's like a blessing and a curse all wrapped into one. C.S. Lewis had a very interesting uh, take on heaven and hell. If those of you are familiar with reading C.S. Lewis' work, he wrote a fictional piece that described heaven and hell, both in it called The Great Divorce back in 1945. And in it, the, the the book opens up with a man who is in what we would describe as hell. And the key, the key characteristic, as you read the book, that you find out about this place of hell is that everyone is isolated. Isolation is his key characteristic of being in hell. It's kind of an interesting description to find that. I mean, there's a lot more to what he defines as well in terms of there's houses, but they don't have any substance, so it always rains right through them and things like that, and it's always gray and cloudy and things like that. But the principal thing about it is that there is isolation. When a new person arrives, he finds all kinds of places for him to live. All the houses are right there. They're big and beautiful, and he goes and he picks any that he chooses, and he lives there, but he realizes there's nobody else there until a new person arrives, and he comes and lives next door, and they have a disagreement. And as soon as they have a disagreement and they can't get along, they find that they both decide to move to be farther away. And they find the next block empty, and they live there until they get a neighbor and they disagree and they move farther and farther away. So that everyone, on his own choice, is living in isolation as far as they can from other people. That's his description of hell. So we get it. That makes sense. We understand that if we can drive ourselves batty by trying to get away all the time into a place of isolation. And isolation we know is not good, not only from a biblical perspective, but from a sociological perspective. I mean, sociologists will tell us that a lot of the problems that we're seeing in the mental, uh, the mental health industry right now are a result of the isolation that came out as a result of the pandemic. You can go on the CDC's own website and look at the increase in anxiety and depression among people of all ages but especially young people. And they, they line up right when the isolation began to happen. Isolation has a problem upon the human soul. And it is, it's interesting to think that we know that there are problems within community. And we think that to solve the problems of the community, we just need to get away. And while we may successfully get away from those particular problems for a time by putting distance between them, we don't feel the pain as harshly anymore, we're really not resolving the problem. Instead, what we're also doing is now we're piling on to the problems we have by adding fear and anxiety of being alone. What we need to solve our problems that we find in community is not isolation from the community, but the right community. 
We need a community that is, that is healing rather than hurting. And we have that in the New Testament described for us specifically in this passage. Here is the solution to the problems that we face. It is living in the right community. So I want to do two things this morning as we look at this passage. One is, well, what, how do, what does this right community look like? And how do we get involved in it? What does this right community look like and how do we get involved with it? So the first thing, let's look at, what does this community look like? And he describes, he describes it in verse 42. For, let's go back to 41. First of all, those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. He's talk, he's, Luke is describing after Peter had just preached a great, a great sermon uh, um, uh, to the people who were gathered together in Jerusalem to celebrate the Pentecost feast. And they heard Peter preach, and they responded by being baptized, and they were added to that number, about 3,000 souls. Now, this is the group he's talking about. And they, this group, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So this is really a description of this kind of community. And if we break that down to look at it, and we want to make it easy to remember, you can think, think of it in this way. It is a community that is, one, grounded in the gospel, it's giving in fellowship, and it's gathering together in worship. That's three of the primary principal characteristics that we see about this community. The community is grounded in the gospel, it's giving in fellowship, and it's gathered together for worship. So let's just walk through that a little bit. What does it mean to be grounded in the gospel. Well, we see it in that opening lines, in that opening line of verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And we've, we can ask, well, what, is, what exactly was the apostles' teaching? And you could, of course, say, well, it was the New Testament. Isn't that the, the apostles' teaching? That's a big document. What specifically are you referring to? Well, if you think about, well, what makes an apostle an apostle? And we know that as we keep reading in Acts because they have to replace one. They replace Judas, who had hung himself after giving away, betraying Christ. They want to replace one, so they talk about what are the requirements of an apostle. The requirements of an apostle are as one who was an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So they devoted themselves to the apostle teaching, which is primarily to teach that this person, Jesus Christ, rose from the dead. He was affirmed by God to be the one who had been sent to Israel to rescue them from their predicament, from their problems. Now, they were a little mistaken about what exactly that predicament was because they were looking for a Savior that God would send. They were looking for one who would save them from the predicament they were experiencing under the occupying nation of the Romans who were oppressing them, who were, who were not allowing them to worship as they wanted to or they were, they were instructed to uh, they were not allowed to live life as expected. This is what they were assuming that their, their rescuer, this one that God would raise up, would do. But instead, the predicament that he was rescuing them wasn't from the occupying Romans. It was from the wickedness of their own way. The message that Peter preaches, which, by the way, you want to think, what did the apostles teach? What's what Peter had just preached? And he had just preached a sermon in which he was explaining 
why it was that they were seeing all these miraculous things happen, specifically in the, the speaking of these foreign languages that perhaps would have been familiar to those who had come from different tribal regions as they heard these apostles who wouldn't have known these languages speaking in their own languages. And they're wondering, what is happening? And Peter's explaining, what you're seeing happening is a fulfillment of what the prophet Joel said on those days that God will pour out His Spirit. He will pour out His Spirit. And why is He pouring out His Spirit? Because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Why was He raised from the dead? Because you killed Him. That was the teaching of the apostle. You killed Him. And it says they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart and said, what must we do? What must we do? And he says two things. He says, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Repent of what? Well, repent for killing the Savior that God sent into the world. That's a pretty serious offense, I would say. But he's calling us to do the same thing. To be devoted to the apostles' teaching means to first be one who has repented. Who has repented. Of what, you could say? Of your pride? Of your going your own way? By the way, if we back up and think, well, why is it that so many people in, in C.S. Lewis's hell wanted to, wanted to go into isolation? Because they were prideful and self-absorbed. And they couldn't handle someone disagreeing with them. They couldn't handle someone challenging who they were. So instead of repenting, they left. So here's a community that instead, when things go wrong, they repent. They repent and they baptize. They were baptized. What is baptism? Well, baptism is, one, it's a washing, but it's not only a washing. It is a washing indicative of the fact that God is washing away the guilt as a result of that very act that cut them to the heart. But it's also a, a joining together. When you're baptized, you're baptized into something. You're baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. Later when they talk about the Old Testament saints, they were baptized into Moses, into this community in which Moses was set apart to be the leader. So the idea that you repent of your pride and self-absorption and you you are baptized, you are joined into this particular body of believers. There's a grounding of the gospel, and this is the, this is the key thing that brings these people together. They are grounded in the ability to repent of their own pride. Now, we still hurt each other all the time within this community of the church. It's not as though we escape the pain of disagreement, of hurting each other's feelings, of finding that someone has disparaged you or talked bad or something is missing, an expectation isn't met. But instead of the community of the world that simply wants to resolve that by leaving and running and finding a new community, we have a community that's built upon the principle of repenting. Pride is a problem. And repentance is a recognition of that. So one, it's a community that is grounded in the gospel. Grounded in the gospel. Two, they were giving in fellowship. Giving in fellowship. We'll continue to read that, verse, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And the fellowship. 
Well, now we have to ask another question. What exactly is the fellowship? Because the fellowship is, an, it is the right English word to use to translate this Greek word, but the meaning in the English has, has some overlap with the Greek meaning, but not, it's not a perfect fit. Just like in any translation, you don't always get a perfect fit. The Greek word that it's, it's being translated from is a word you've probably heard called koinonia. Koinonia is the root of koinonia is koinos, which means common. The idea that he's saying is they're, they're devoted themselves to this group that has life in common. And to further illustrate that, he goes on to describe in verse 44 and 46, what does that mean? Well, all who believed were together and had all things in common. There's that word again. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So there's two things we see that, out of this. What does this community, this right community look like? Well, they're giving and their fellowship. They have life in common. They were together. They were together. I mean, this is not complicated things, but they are challenging to the American church. Because the American church doesn't think in terms of, of relationship between Jesus and the church. They think of relationship between Jesus and me. As though the church, well, yes, it's a facilitator, but that's really only why it exists, to facilitate my personal relationship, my individual relationship with Jesus Christ. And, of course, there's lots of facilitators of that relationship. I can find it from books. I can find it from, from great preachers. I can listen to their podcasts. I can take classes. I can jump from this class at this church and this class to this church and this class at this seminary or this class on this podcast or, or uh, uh, online uh, scenario. I can listen to, the, to those who would post their favorite verses online and just simply follow them. You see, there's this idea in American culture that we just have these individual relationship with Jesus, and the church is just a facilitator to that. But that's not what we see anywhere in the Bible. Instead, what we see are people that are gathered together, living life. They're, they're gathering together. They live together. How often do they live together? Well, it says... Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. It doesn't say exactly how many days of the week, but he does say day by day. There is this indication that they are somehow together enough that this is a principal community. It is their primary community in their life. A primary gathering of people in their life. Now, if you think about your life, and where do you... When you think about the people that you spend the most time with, who are they? Not that we shouldn't spend time with lots of different people. We should. I don't think that's the point. But the point is, who is your primary, your principal community? I think so many people in the American church simply attend a worship service, perhaps on Sunday morning, but they've never really connected with anybody there. They don't certainly live life together with any of the people there. They just come. That doesn't fit the description that we see here. Because there is a level of involvement that has to exist, whether it's one day a week or five days a week or three days a week. It has to be enough that they are aware of the other people's needs within their community because that's what they're doing. It's not just that they're, they're, uh, they're together. They have all things in common. So much so that when someone in the church, in this body of believers, 
is hurting in some way, we see them, other people, responding financially, even to the degree of selling their homes and bringing the proceeds to help out with those who are in need. That's a sacrificial level of giving. Now, you probably don't see that in your bunco group or your little league team, right? Or the college football fans you hang out on Saturday and watch the games with. But in the church, that's what you see. Now, you will see that in a family setting. Families all the time are sacrificing. Parents are all the time sacrificing things that they might otherwise do in order to help their kids and the different needs that they have. Whether that's be involved in this or it's pay for the wreck they just had over here or it's go to college or whatever it might be. These are sacrifices they make and they don't even pause about making them. Of course they're going to make them. It's a no-brainer they're going to make them because this is their community, their family. That's what is being described here. This church community is a community that is meant to have that level of familial commitment between its people. Well, I mean, that is a challenge to so many of us because we simply we want to be part of that, but we don't know what the other needs are. Why do we not know the other needs in the, within the body? Because we're not involved together enough to hear them, to get to know people to, their, to the degree that they are comfortable sharing those kinds of things with us. Because you can't just do that by filling out a card and dropping it in the box out there. I, I want you to share the prayer request that way, but that's not a comfortable way to share prayer requests. You share a request, a real need that you might have within a group that has earned your trust. And that takes time. Together time. So what is this community that looks like that has the ability to heal instead of hurt? Well, they're grounded in the gospel. And they're gathered or they're giving in fellowship. And third... They're gathered in worship. They're gathered together in worship. Look again what it says. In verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The breaking of bread and the prayers are specific things that we would associate with the act of worship. I mean, we do those things when we come together on a Sunday morning to worship, for example. We have the prayers. We go through, in essence, the Lord's Prayer is what shapes our whole worship service. Our worship is a prayer. And we also come together to partake the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread. So there is a gathering together in worship that defines this community. And it's not just formal worship, as in the temple. It also says they're breaking bread in each other's homes. There is an aspect of informal worship that is going on when they get together to meet. It is a principal part of their relationship. When they get together to eat, there is a sense in which Jesus himself is there, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there is Jesus in their midst. There is a natural sense that there is worship going on. They're gathering together to worship. Now again, you can look at what sociologists would understand this. They wouldn't necessarily call it this way, but they would say that people who get together in community gather together, not necessarily because they're of the same ethnic background or they're the same socioeconomic status, but because there is some core value that unites them. 
some core value that unites them. Now, we would redefine that as a church and say there is something that they all worship. <laughs> That's the core value. It's the thing that they worship. Unites them together to be that principal community. Now, you probably are involved in a lot of different communities, and that's okay. I think that's excellent, in fact. But you have to ask, which one is your principal community? And what is at the core of that community? In other words, what is that community bowing down to that brings them all together? I mean, think about the different kinds of communities. You can be involved in a community that is built around the Astros. How are the Astros doing? Right? And, again, it's not that they're... You should do that, those kinds of things. But if this becomes your principal community, you realize at the, the core level of what your, of connects you is simply how well are the Astros doing? By the way, that's not a great foundation. Some years better than others, maybe. Or maybe it's a, you know, a little league team. You've committed so much time to this little league team, this becomes your core community. I think a few weeks ago we asked, you want to know what it is you worship? You can say you can follow your money. I could, you could also say, where do you spend the most time? Who do you spend the most time with? And does that reveal the true God to whom you're bowing? Whether the core value is beauty, you're hanging out with only beautiful people, or the core value is money, you are hanging out with people who have the same levels of money and interest with their money as you do. I mean, those can be core values. Those can be things that we bow down to in worship. So how do you know what you're worshiping? What is your principal community? What is your principal community? So this is a right community. This is what it looks like as he described it. They are grounded in the gospel they're giving in fellowship, and they're gathered together in worship. Now, I want to talk a little bit about why this is a healing community and not a hurting community. Why is this a healing community and not a hurting community? Well, the th remember the reasons that we get hurt. You know, we have a disagreement. We have a conflict. We experience pain, personal pain, because someone has said something we didn't like. They don't made an expectation that we had of them, or we simply have a disagreement on things that we think are important. And so we get hurt. And the natural response is to escape, is to get away, is to run away. Now, in the wrong community, that may be a helpful thing just to get away from that community, because all it's going to lead to is more division and more pain and more digging in the heels and trying to expose the other person as the wrong person. The payback, as it were, the pain that you experienced. But in the community that is grounded in the gospel, that is the chief of repenters, there is healing, there is the hope of healing, put it that way. In fact, there is a sense in which the ideal community that we saw happening before the fall ever occurred when Adam and Eve are brought together, it describes them as being naked and unashamed. I mean, that is the ultimate goal of community, by the way. I don't mean to be necessarily physically naked. That's not the point. The point is that you are able to see each other so clearly and so well, so transparently, that you know all about the other person. 
And yet there's a sense in which you can be in that community and not be ashamed. I mean, that's the ultimate goal of a pure community. We're not there yet. We have lots of things that make us ashamed. I mean, when sin entered the world, what was the first reaction of Adam and Eve? It's to go and hide. It's to go and hide. So we are always going to be encountering pain, in the, even in this community, that's going to make us want to go run and hide. But again, what is the principal reason why we're running and hiding? Our own shame. Our own going our own way. Our own pride. What do we need to get back to this pure community? We need this pride, this self-absorption, these things somehow weaseled out of us, <laughs> whittled away, fixed, resolved. And you know how God does that? With a chisel <laughs> that he puts in the hands of the church, by the way. When Jesus broke the bread with his disciples, and he talked about, this is my body and this is my blood. He says, this blood is the blood of the new covenant. The blood of the new covenant. Do you know what the new covenant was? Let me read to you a passage about the new covenant. From Ezekiel 36, beginning verse 25, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, there's, a, there's heart surgery going on. I mean, that's, that's some serious stuff. Heart surgery is a major operation. By the way, my dad went through it. He had five bypasses done back in 2008, I think it was. And that's a, that's a, takes some serious recovery time. Well, that's what the new covenant is. It is heart surgery on people. That is painful. It takes a long time to recover. And you know who's doing this, the surgery? Did you read who's doing the surgery and why it hadn't happened yet? Why it's a new covenant? Because he will pour out his spirit upon all people. It is the Holy Spirit who's going to do this heart surgery. And until Jesus had died and resurrected, he could not send out the Holy Spirit to do this work. So therefore, in the Old Testament, that's why they're trying to externally obey the laws that are written on stone. Now he's saying, I'm going to write the law on your hearts. I'm going to do heart surgery on you. Take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh so that you walk in my ways by your own heart and what I've written there instead of what's written on the stone. And where do we find the Holy Spirit is the question. You know what Paul tells the Corinthian church? He says, you yourselves, the church, are being built together to be a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. The church is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. You cannot find heart surgery that's going to fix the problems in your own heart in any other community. And if you choose to only be involved in the church community peripherally, 
You have cut yourself off from the means by which God has ordained to work that heart surgery in you. Yes, it's putting your faith in the work that Jesus Christ has done. And what is the work that he has done? Is to give birth to a new body, the church. It is interesting. When we go, we talk about the breaking of bread, and we, we, we like to talk about it in terms of reminding us that, that Jesus gave up his body, he was broken, and he poured out his blood. He had to die in order to bring us into communion with the Father. We call it communion. But it is interesting that it's so much more than that, because when Paul is addressing the Corinthian church in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he's rebuking them because they're not taking the Lord's Supper in a proper way. You think, well, how are they not doing it? Have they substituted Coke and cookies for the bread and wine? No. Some are eating so much food that others get left out. Or some are drinking so much wine they're getting drunk and others are being left out. And, and Paul says, as a result of this, some of you are getting sick and you are dying because you are not recognizing the body, this body, the church body, this community of faith by coming together. You're coming as individuals, not as a family. So how do, we, how do we live in this community? If that's what it looks like, and that's how it's helping our hearts, how do we live in it? Well, that's what we're going to talk about in the, last, the next couple of weeks. But the first thing, and if you want to walk away with one thing, this is the one thing that you can do. And it's the key word, the key verb in verse 42 it's what they did. They devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. To what? To this community that's defined by the gospel and the giving and the gathering. That means some of you need to make a commitment, a devotion to this body not because we're all beautiful because most of us probably aren't <laughs> not because we're all likable because some of you aren't because <laughs> I'm not either oftentimes but you need to make a commitment to this body that your principal community might be a place where the Holy Spirit himself is chosen to dwell that he might do that heart surgery on you and you will have the people surrounding you to help you through it. Because guess who the chisels are and the scalpels are that he uses to cut those bad things out of our heart? The pain that the other people in this body often cause you. So don't run from that pain. See it as what the Lord is doing to be at work on you and you to be an instrument that's working on others. Devote yourselves to this body, the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the body. We're grateful for the work of Jesus Christ that has done what was necessary to give birth to this body, to create this body, and make us a family, a family in which we can call God himself Father. Lord, I pray for each of the persons here that you would be at work leading them to take whatever that next step is for them to be committed and devoted and gathering together with this body. In Jesus' name, amen.